I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the XPRIZE Future Positive Podcast. I'm your host, Shlomi Katan, Chief Advancement Officer at the XPRIZE Foundation, and this is the first of a two-part special examining the state of democracy as we enter the third decade of the 21st century. I'm joined by two luminaries in the field. Susan Herman is president of the American Civil Liberties Union, a post to which she was elected in 2008 after having served on the ACLU National Board of Directors as a member of the ACLU's Executive Committee and as general counsel. She is currently the Centennial Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School, teaching courses in constitutional law and criminal procedure, and seminars on law and literature and terrorism and civil liberties. Joining us also is political campaign innovator, author, and podcast host, Joe Trippi. Heralded as the man who reinvented campaigning, Joe has been at the forefront of movement politics for nearly 30 years. As manager of Howard Dean's 2004 campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination, he developed a number of strategies and tools for online campaigning that heralded a new era in politics. Joe currently serves as president of Joe Trippi and Associates and hosts his own podcast, That Trippy Show. Thank you for joining. As we record this, Donald Trump is seeking re-election. Former Vice President Joe Biden is looking to lead the Democrats back into the White House. These last four years have produced a lot of writing about threats to democracy on a national and global level, from the increased attention paid to the nearly two-decade rise of national populists in places like Russia, Venezuela, Hungary, Turkey, and of course the U.S., to analyses of the downfall of civility and philosophy in political and public discourse, to the erosion and inherent fragility of our democratic institutions, and to the meddling of foreign actors in elections across the globe. And while these are dire warnings, I think Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt really capture the banality of it all in how democracies die, pointing out that democratic regression today doesn't take the form of a sudden and dramatic military coup, but rather unfolds through the gradual and fragmentary erosion of democratic norms over an extended period of time. And Susan, Joe, you two have been working for decades, albeit in different ways, to protect the rights of citizens to have a government formed by and for them, for their voices and for every voice to be heard. And I want to start by asking each of you what you see as the most urgent threats to democracy today. And, and Susan, let's start with you. Uh, okay, well, thank you, Shlomi, and thank you for inviting me to join you today. We would need hours and weeks to talk about the most urgent threats because one answer is all of the above. So um, I was just got off a webinar with ACLU lawyers around the country who were extremely worried about what to do if there are disruptions to the election and yeah, how we protect the current election. Uh, the ACLU has brought dozens of cases about the impact of the pandemic on the election. So that's also a tremendous problem of whether we can really have people able to vote because of ways in which the pandemic is affecting the election. But to me, where I would start, and this might be surprising, is the pandemic is coming upon what we already had as a plague of voter suppression. And I trace that back to the fault is in our constitutional stars. The constitution does not provide us with a healthy democracy. And I think that it is a lot easier for a democracy to ail when it was never healthy in the first place. So three quick things about the constitution. Number one is it doesn't set up a democracy, it sets up a republic, and it gives an unfair advantage to the, you know, mostly the former slaveholding states, the small states in the electoral college and in the Senate. And it also gives the state the right to make almost all rules regarding elections. 
And that's what we're seeing as a problem. We're seeing voter suppression. We're seeing uneven responses to whether you're going to encourage people to vote during the pandemic. Now, the ACLU is nonpartisan, and we call out either party if we think they're trying to put a thumb on the scale. So we challenge gerrymandering, whether it was the Democrats in Maryland or the Republicans in Wisconsin. But I think these days, what you see is that it's really mostly the Republicans who are trying to keep people from voting because they believe that if more people vote, if we continue the trajectory from the Constitution on of having a more inclusive electorate, they don't think they can win. So they're trying to prevent people from voting. So the Constitution does not set us up well because it gives uneven power. Congress could have fixed that, but they haven't. It took them 100 years to pass the Voting Rights Act in the first place. Uh, they're not doing enough right now. Uh, the Supreme Court has totally failed. They've either not gotten involved with gerrymandering or things like that, and they haven't helped. So to me, you know, we can talk about you know, Russian interference and so forth, but to me, we have never had a healthy democracy. We've been working on improving it. Thank you for that. And yeah, it's, you know, voter suppression was part of the law for, for the first couple of centuries of this country and continues to be. Well, at first it was just voter, voter bans. And, you know, so technically people have the right to vote, but it, you know, they're being discouraged in so many ways. Yeah. Joe, from, from your perspective, what do you see also as, as other pressing threats to, to our democracy? Well, I, I agree. It'd take days to talk about it. I mean, it's, just, it's across the board. It's everything. I think a lot of it is that a lot of the technology that we developed helped us get here. Uh, even a lot of the things that we did in the Dean campaign helped us get here. A lot of the innovation uh, helped us get here. And we basically, you know, we essentially built a Trojan horse right into every voter's mind and sitting in the palm of their hand. And the way that different campaigns, different disinformation from out of from other countries can just actually, you know, invade into that. And, and with so much disinformation, that's obviously one. The one I thought uh, when we did the Dean campaign, I thought, wow, we figured out a way for, from the bottom up to really empower people to change, to come together and change their democracy, make it stronger, uh, beat the big money. And look, we raised uh, $59 million. I think about 50 million of it was online. Four years later, Obama raised, I mean, an unbelievable half a billion dollars from three million people. Basically, what happened then was the Republicans didn't go out and say, hey, let's do the bottom up thing. They said, let's change the rules. Let's have, uh, they, they went to court. You had Citizens United ruling. And guess what? Dark money will beat the little money again. While it, that's the one place where technology, I think, actually did move power into the hands of people. But I also think that all the, the ability now to keep people divided, that's been enabled by all the social networks and everything else. And no one, all the people who are in, who are, have so, so much brain power, including XPRIZE, I'm just, <laughs> right, who, you know, spent so much time, a lot of them spent so much time putting this technology in everybody's hands and no time, well, not a whole lot of effort into sort of how do we use it to build a common purpose and a common good, or at least to empower people to do that instead of letting them throw punches at each other, which is, you know, if you look at any of the social networks, that's really all that goes on now. Everybody's in their own bubble. So you've got the own, our own bubble. You've got the disinformation that can fly around and influence folks. And then you have, of course, a totally untrustworthy voting mechanism in terms of, you know, whether even the, the whether the machines had paper, uh, you know, have paper ballot backup. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that, that can go on there. A lot of that has not gotten fixed. And when we were, uh, when I was with XPRIZE uh, trying to lead a team on democracy, we, we were, the only piece we were trying to focus on was how could you secure, you know, the secret ballot in a way that would make it easy and secure. And uh, I used to, I remember I gave a talk at the time at the Visioneer Summit and about how, how we have all the technology to get to Mars and we believe we, could, we can colonize it. But here on Earth, our democracy is, is all you know, in a shambles and the, and the most secure thing we have is a paper, is a piece of paper. That's the, the most secure, in, close your eyes, stick it in the slot in the box. And, you know, and we'll open the box and there'll be other people there looking as they, as we take it out and count it. That's the safest, most secure way right now when we have all this 
all these things that we could fix. So I, I, I think it's, it, you know, in this election, ballot security, uh, voter suppression, all the things that we've mentioned so far are, are critical, but I think it's been kind of, we've taken a lot for granted. As technologists, I think we, it was all this stuff was going to be great. And it's turned out a lot of it had consequences that helped get us here. I mean, I often think now in the Dean for America, the, you know, our blog, you know, Howard Dean would get on that blog first thing in the morning uh, and say something. And we have 650,000 people would then come onto the blog and comment. And I would come in and say, and comment. And one day in uh, 2016, I was watching Twitter and I realized, oh my gosh, this is Donald Trump's blog. This is his blog for America. He is using it the exact way we created Dean for America. The first, he only candidate to do it, but in a disruptive way. And that's what I'm saying. So I am really worried about not trying to do this, about not bringing people together and trying to figure this out on so many different levels. Yeah. So it's it's a lot to to chew on and I, and I want to eventually I want to get to your ideas of how we can fix this but I wanted to continue to diagnose the problem a little bit with with some specifics and and Susan going back to you you talked about kind of the the origination of our democracy as already corrupted to a certain extent as denying equal access to the vote to certain groups for a long time, but also now doing so in such a way that makes it harder to vote, that makes it that makes certain groups less likely to vote. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. I know that you know at the ACLU, you guys are are looking both at voter suppression and voter intimidation. Uh, you talked about the pandemic. Can you give some examples of some of the things that you are seeing that both kind uh, of keep you up at night, but also give you hope? in terms of, of that specific aspect of democratic access? Well, let me say two kinds of things. First, um, as I was saying before, what Joe was saying about, you know, can we figure out what the best technological solution is to get everybody to vote? You know, change begins with imagination. So it's really important to think about how that might happen. But the problem that we're having that would also be the roadblock in that area is the fact that the Constitution allowed minority government through the Electoral College, through the Senate, through giving the states all the power. And not everybody in this country is interested in making it easy for people to vote. And so you know, that's your problem number one, is you have to get past the political roadblock to solutions. And we've had, we've been working for years on you know, different solutions. We've objected to the Electoral College for years, but you can't get a constitutional amendment because most states are not gonna vote for it. Someone once said to me, you can't get turkeys to vote for Thanksgiving. And the, uh, the workaround, the National Popular Vote Compact that was kind of in the works that might've worked to do that, I think is very, would be very likely now to be struck down by you know, a very conservative Supreme Court. So that's the discouraging news, is the political roadblock that we are in the grip of a minority party that doesn't want people to vote. So you, all these individual little things of how are they going about that are the symptoms, that's not the cause. Now in the good news terms, so we have been litigating in 30 different states about voter suppression measures and things about you know, who can be eligible to have an absentee ballot if they want one during the pandemic. Can you be required to get government issued photo ID in the middle of a pandemic? And you know, there are just you know, so many problems with the current election. But going back to the more general fixes, if the states in the first place have been more open to, you know, first of all, why is an election day a holiday? Why do people have to choose between working and voting? There are all sorts of ways in which we could make it easier for people to vote if we wanted to do that. So a lot of states have been moving in the right direction. And one of the things that we've been doing is in places where you can't get the legislators to agree to things like automatic voter registration and just you know, easier rules, make it easy for people to vote, let them register the same day, let them vote early. A lot of states go for that, but the states with a lock of uh, Republican power will not. And what we have been finding, and this is both the good news and the bad news, is that the people in many of those states do not agree with the legislators. So we have taken ballot initiatives in states like Nevada and Michigan and um, Missouri and Florida, the Amendment 4 that re-enfranchised felons, and a sizable majority of people in those states want fair election rules. They don't want a, you know, rules that are going to advantage their party. They want everyone to be able to vote easily. So the roadblock there is the legislators who want to keep their job. They want to thumb up the scale. So to me, the long range good news is that the American people get it. 
you know, people really do want fair and neutral election procedures, and they, they want people to vote. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was renewed, you know, I think it was either six or seven times, and it was signed very proudly by Richard Nixon, by George W. Bush, by Ronald Reagan, in addition to Democrats. Ronald Reagan referred to it as the crown jewel of, you know, of democracy. And I think what is so sad is that today we are in a position where only one party really wants to encourage and allow everybody to vote and really is in favor of democracy. And again, yeah, I think our problem is the original sin and it's mostly traceable back to slavery and you know, the reactions to slavery and giving the states these powers. So it's extremely difficult to get to a situation where we can all reason together through our elected officials. But again, the good news is I think if we can go direct to the people, the people get it. Yeah, and that's, and that's a really encouraging thing because one of the things that you don't hear it so much in these days, but you used to hear more, I remember being younger and hearing about voter apathy, right? And, and even when you talk about voter turnout, it's putting the burden on the voters as if the voters are the ones not turning out when it's really hard. I remember, I, I've, by the way, for 20 years, I have been looking for an interview that was done that I remember hearing on election day in 2000 with Dick Cheney, upset that the automotive companies agreed with the UAE to give workers more time to go vote on that day in Michigan. Yeah. And I remember hearing this, and for 20 years, I've been trying to find a recording of that interview. But yeah, it's the narrative around voter turnout versus voter suppression. And I think it's, it is really encouraging to hear you talk about that. You mentioned the motivations of, in particular, Republican elected officials to not want higher voter turnout. And I, I wanted to touch on something that, Joe, you mentioned, which has to do with money in politics. And you talked about how you guys with Dean for America started this grassroots fundraising, right? And and Obama really took it to another level. Ironically, to some extent, Trump, by selling merchandise, has kind of figured that piece out as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. And obviously, you know, it's, it's been interesting to hear how, you know, recently Lindsey Graham even questioning Citizens United because now his, his Democratic opponent is out raising him. Right. Can you, can you give listeners you know, in particular, considering the length of your career, uh, a sense of exactly how the way that money is flowing into politics, and especially in light of Citizens United, how that is actually changing both the elections and their outcomes. Well, you're seeing it every day now. I mean, it's like, you know, I think for president, I mean, they're, they're both going to spend, you know, well into the billions of dollars, right? I, I mean, I think it's good. I mean, Joe Biden's uh, average contribution is $47 from all the people who've given to him. Uh, that's what's, ha what's happened is this, on the, the scales have been tipping more towards small donors and people at the grassroots having more say, or at least more, more impact. And you're seeing that in the Senate races this year as well. The problem is, in my view, is that the laws have all, and courts have ruled, et cetera, in a way that it, the more we tip that scale that way, the more they change the rules to let big money or dark money or money you can't identify come into these campaigns. And so you have all these independent expenditure committees that don't report where their money's coming from. In other words, Lindsey Graham probably would have far less money than he has because his opponent is raising a zillion dollars in small dollars from average people and there, there are independent expenditure committees coming in on both sides. But for Lindsay, he really needs that from whether it's corporate interest groups. I mean, it's just different. Uh, in fact, a lot of them, these committees are a single billionaire who's decided secretly that he's got this vehicle to run negative ads against whoever, both Republican or Democrat. They tend to be Republicans that are doing this. And that helped Trump in 2016 as well. So I, I'd say over the time, a whole, everything's obviously changed. We've got, you know, frag, media has just completely fragmented and, and with social media that's continuing. Part of that is it's really has empowered the grassroots at at least the fundraising level, but the powers that be, I'm talking about the same thing, the legislatures, the, the, the judges are 
the same people who like in the state are saying, hey, how can we suppress people and make sure they don't, we, we can keep our side in power are also trying to figure out and have, how can we, the, oh, those scales are tipping on the money to little people. How can we make sure that there's a big loophole so a billionaire can come in here and set that scale right? Uh, so you have all these different things that need to get, I think that do need to get addressed. And I do agree too that in terms of the constitution, we were set up in a way that, that just made this all happen. I mean, again, where smaller states have, I mean, you have two senators from California and two from Idaho. <laughs> you know, like it, it's like, you know, great. They have as much power as, you know, and they, they represent a thimble of the people in, in California. I love Idaho, but I'm just saying it doesn't make any sense, particularly when that party then uses that power to maintain control of the Senate and have the, and, and get in a place where literally, think about this, the Republican Party nominee since 1988 was the last time a Republican won the popular vote nationally, okay? I mean, they didn't win it in 92 against Bill Clinton. They didn't win it in 96 against Bill Clinton. They, Gore won it in 2000. They've won it one time since 1988. 2004, George W. Bush running for re-election. That's the only time they've won the popular vote. Obama, Obama, Hillary. So in all that time, we're talking from 1988 to 2016, one guy, George W. Bush, in his re-election campaign, won the popular vote. Yet, they won the presidency several times, like three times now out of that whole time without, you know, where, because of the Electoral College. Well, how does that happen? Because that's, I totally agree. It was going back to how we set this up, at the, the founders set this up at the beginning to protect those smaller states in the South and, you know, back then, because that's, that's where it came from. But it's now, as we added Idaho, other places that just kept compounding the problem. And we are a republic, not a democracy. And I agree how we change that. It's got to, that's going to have to happen from the bottom up too, in terms of actually creating a, a way to, to, to change that the electoral college or, you know, I think, I think it, that's gotta be a major thing. Although frankly, I would also say this is that I think a lot of things we want to fix are caused by close elections. In other words, like, you know, democracy, our country works pretty well if somebody's winning by 10 points, right? <laughs> you know, because then all the suppression and all the stuff that we worry about, which we should be worried about. That's not my point. My point is, I think when we have those close elections like 2000, you, it, it really, they're healthy in a way because it exposes how fragile this thing is and how, and, and exposes all the problems that, that we have. That's one of the big things that did happen out of 2016. So I think there are a lot more people now. Uh, it's not just ACLU. I mean, they've been there for eons on this stuff, but I'm saying other people now are joining them and, and technology folks are starting to try to figure out what we need to do. And I think it's those close elections that expose where the holes are, where, how fragile the democracy is that I think are, are give, give me hope that there will be enough people trying to figure a way out of this. Shlomi, if I could build on what Joe was just saying, which I think I completely agree, Joe, with the connection you're drawing between the money and politics and the underlying faults in our democracy. Because as you were just saying, Democrats have been winning popular elections for presidents despite the best efforts of states to depress the Democratic vote. Very clear. So if you had more people able to vote, if you had less voter suppression, for one thing, you wouldn't have elections that were that close and money would start mattering less. Exactly. Because you wouldn't have, you know, these six undecided people are the ones who you need. I think at this point, if you could just poll every single eligible voter in the country and just ask, who would you rather have be president? Yeah, I think the results are going to be far more dramatically at this point in favor of, of Biden than who turns out at the polls. What you were saying, Shalomi, before is turnout is not it's on you, it's a voluntary thing you didn't turn out. Turnout is something that's being manipulated. And the fact that, as Joe was saying, we have had Democrats winning the popular vote shows where the democracy is, because despite all the attempts of suppression, they've been winning anyway. And that, to me, it means that money, again, it's a symptom, it's not the cause. So if you can get back to the root of the problem and really figure out ways to get everybody to vote, and I think that's probably where you want to go next in terms yeah. of can technology do that, right? I 
I do, and and so I, but I I want to push on this on this idea a little bit, right? Because you know, I the electoral college, you know, obviously it matters in presidential elections. But going back just to twenty eighteen, right, and the the midterm elections, Democrats had eighteen million more votes than Republicans, yet lost three seats. Now, the way the Electoral College is structured is based on the idea that we have a bicameral system and we have two representatives for each state in order to even things out, right? It's the great compromise. The, the thing is, if we're starting to push on this idea that there's an original sin in American democracy that is inscribed in the Constitution, to a certain extent, you take that to its logical conclusion and you're saying, you gotta get rid of the Senate. And, and I think that is impractical. It also kind of then ends up landing you in the type of democracies that have been less stable than the United States. So I wanna, before going into the solutions, I wanna push a little bit on, on this idea and hear your thoughts on that because you know, as somebody who looks at the numbers and says, wow, 18 million more votes, fine, but I live in California and I think we're right. And I think like we should have more of a voice, but it's, you know, because we are part of, of one nation, but there's, I think you take this argument to its logical conclusion. Now you're starting to say, well, does the Senate make sense? Does this, so I wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit about, about that. Right. Well, one question is, do you take the idea as far as it goes, or is there still some room for compromise? So I was involved, uh, involved now in a very interesting project that the Brooklyn Public Library, my local library, has been doing called the 28th Amendment. And what they did was they had town halls at local libraries all over Brooklyn, virtually, of course, in the spring. And they just asked people in, the, uh, in Brooklyn, what do you think should be in the Constitution? And one of the things people were extremely disturbed about was exactly what we're talking about, the Electoral College, the Senate, so then I was one of four people to be asked to be a drafter of the 28th Amendment. So I have experience doing exactly what you said. And with my co-framers, we decided not to eliminate the Senate, but to just make it a little bit less you know, disproportionate. But we did want to eliminate the Electoral College. And it seems to me the problem is that we've really outgrown the need for the Electoral College. And a lot of the history of the Electoral College is intertwined with the history of slavery. And to me, the right answer to the Electoral College is it should have been eliminated during Reconstruction. And I think that you know, after the pandemic is over, not only do we need a new deal <laughs> to kind of get the economy back together, but I think we need another Reconstruction. I think we really do need to think, rethink who are we as a society and can, do we want to be a democracy? Can we do better? Yeah, great point. Joe, your thoughts? Well, I, I wouldn't, I'd probably be there on not getting rid of the Senate. When it's functioning, when the Senate is functioning, and it, and it has, it just hasn't in recent times, but it, it really is a, a, a stabilizing force. And so, I mean, a lot of that's just because they don't face election every two years like the House does, so that, so that they, they, they can not worry so much about, you know, this vote I'm about to take, because, you know, I got to face election in in, in three weeks, right? So uh, a lot of them are five years away from their election or four years away from their election right now. So I think there's a, a lot of good there. The, the problem we have, there, there's, there is another place though, the institution itself is dysfunctional, right? Why? Because there are, I don't know how many, like something over five, 600 bills that have been passed in the house. They're sitting in Mitch McConnell's desk. He is not allowed a vote on any of those, right? So like the normal process of, we voted for this in the House, you guys in the Senate pass a, a bill and let's all sit down and negotiate between the two, those two bills. That is, that, this move by the Republicans, not just at voter suppression, this is like an all out reach for power and to hold it as long as they can. And so there's so many things that aren't functioning that could, I mean, that really, that really could, I mean, I, uh, and I, I agree, like you could expand the Senate somehow uh, so it's more proportional. There are things that could be done, but be, even before you get there, at some level, the, the institutions themselves are starting to become so dysfunctional. And I don't know how we, how we fix that. I mean, I like to say, oh, great, we, you know, two years from now, we'll have a really good leader in the Senate who won't do that. Well, you know, the, what's happened too many times now is that, the other party gets in, and we're seeing this with the uh, filibuster and other things where, yeah, we're going to get in, we'll pack the court, we'll do, I mean, it, 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 you know, and I don't think that's 
healthy to do either. So things can, as these institutions become so dysfunctional, I, I think the other thing is, we're just, the, the one thing I'd say, the biggest problem we have in this democracy or republic is we have lost whatever you want to call citizen, a sense of citizenship. There are no citizens in this country. We ought to call ourselves, we're, oh yeah, I'm a citizen. BS. We got to restore that sense of common purpose citizenship because if we don't do it at the ground level, it's not going to happen at the top. They're just going to keep playing and dividing. And I think if you ask me the biggest thing that's changed in my lifetime, it's that. I just think people say, um, oh yeah, I'm a citizen. And we don't have that. We've somehow that got lost in, or, or we've joined different tribes or whatever. And Trump obviously helps that along. But that's the thing where I would start is how do we rebuild the sense of citizenship, of duty to each other, of finding common ground and common purpose, then that starts to rebuild uh, because otherwise I think it's coming apart at the seams right now. Yeah, and it seems to me one thing that's really changed, Joe, since you and I went to elementary school or seventh grade, is a lot of schools have eliminated civics education. That was where you know, people used to learn to be citizens in the public schools and you'd have social studies or you know, whatever, you'd learn about our common values. But, and I think this is so sad, Civics education in a lot of places in the country has fallen to hyper-partisanship. Each side distrusts the other to write the curriculum or to choose the textbook because it's as if we have two different stories and we can't agree on the story. So I gave a talk recently at the Central Arkansas Library, which I was addressing this problem and how I, I feel like the ACLU is one of the only organizations in the country trying to get beyond partisanship and trying to convince everybody to look at the values we have in common like believing that people should get to say what they think, even if you don't agree, and believing that people have a right to choose their own religion and that everybody should have a chance to vote. And what I called the talk was, a Republican and a Democrat walk into a bar. And it seems to me what you're saying, if that Republican and that Democrat can't have a conversation about something other than beer or sports, then we really are in trouble. So I was urging people, instead of staying away from the uncomfortable conversations about do you and I still agree about any of our fundamental values with you know, your uncle at Thanksgiving or whoever it is who's gonna disagree with you? I think we have to invite those conversations and we have to start engaging each other to really figure out, do we still have you know, things in common? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, the, the breakdown in, in civility and in political discourse, right? There's, there's an absence, Masha Gessen has, has written about this in her, in her most recent book, right? In uh, Surviving Autocracy the language around politics has become so devoid of, of intellect and philosophy that it is all tribal signaling that, you know, it makes it very difficult to have civil conversations and to share the same view of society, right? That's one of her, one of her points is like, it's as if, you know, ha half the country is living in a democracy and the other half has agreed to live in an autocracy. And that's, that's a point that she makes. I wanted to talk more about these solutions. You, Susan, you mentioned a 28th Amendment, but, but also earlier mentioned the, the diminishing likelihood of getting anything like that passed or, or even anything that does not come through the amendment route uh, being approved by the courts. And, and I want to hear from you, what are the things, and in particular, the things that the ACLU is doing that are helping to, one, protect voter rights, and two, redesign the system so that it is more representative? Well, I, there are quite, you know, there's so many answers to that too, in terms of the things that the ACLU is doing. Picking up from where Joe was just leaving off and what we were just talking about, I think from the ground up, one of the things that we're trying to do is to do more public education. One way in which we're doing this is you were known mostly for litigation and we are litigating in 30 states right now about you're trying to fight off the voter suppression and so forth. But I think long-term, you, the courts are not going to save us from this. You know, people have to understand this. But we are urging everybody to educate themselves, not just about the presidential election by watching the debate, but about the election for your local prosecutor or you know, the local sheriff or people who you might not have paid much attention to but who have enormous power. So we have a program that you know, maybe some of your listeners are interested in called People Power, where we get volunteers all over the country to attend candidate forums and debates, and to ask questions about civil liberties issues. To say to um, you know, the people running for prosecutor, if you were elected, what would your position be on cash bail? 
if I vote for you, what are you going to do about having alternatives to incarceration? And number one, it educates people, gets them to think more about civil liberties and our issues at a time when everyone's paying attention because they're trying to decide who to vote for. And maybe, you know, so we're trying to tell them that those races are important. And another thing that that does is it means that you have a candidate who, if they think that they might get more votes by saying, oh yes, I'm really gonna look at cash bail. I recognize that that's a problem if people don't have a lot of money, then you can get a candidate to commit in advance to a position. And then you get out the vote. So one of our current slogans is vote as if your rights depend on it. So you know, that one of the, so you were not only litigating, and the other thing, as I mentioned before, that is tremendously important, but extremely time consuming and costly are the ballot initiatives. So we were heavily involved in Amendment 4 in Florida that where the voters of Florida agreed that if somebody has been convicted of a crime and they've served their sentence, they should be able to vote. Now we saw backlash against that from the Florida legislature. They don't want everyone to be able to vote. But to me, the, as, as Joe was saying, this is gonna be a long process. Nothing is gonna be immediately cured, even if we have regime change. I think we really do have to start working from the ground up and really grassroots effort to make people understand our fundamental values. So that's a lot of what we're doing right now. And we're trying to engage volunteers to help us with that effort, to get out there to all the candidate debates and really you know, raise awareness of civil liberties issues, including the right to vote, but everything else too. I think the initiative process is a really important one. There's a couple of unfortunate things. Not all states have them, so that's a problem. And I think a possible cure or betterment, whatever you want to call it, would be to actually have national referenda in a presidential year. What I'm trying to say is the, the courts, the electoral college, the Senate, the House, everybody. Right now, the president of the United States, the only office elected nationally, uh, well, except for the electoral college. But what I mean by that, the only one who, who the votes are counted nationally. And, uh, you know, if you had on a lot of these key issues, and I don't mean a lot, but an ability to have national initiatives, even if they were only recommendations to the, to the House and the Senate and the President, I, I think it would, it would be healthy for us to be able to do that. I'd, I'd, ra I'd rather have it be binding, but that might be part of a solution as well. And, and that ties back to, to something you said earlier about really empowering voters. And, and I wanna go to, to something that you said earlier in this conversation about the role of technology in that and how originally when you, when you were running Howard Dean's campaign, right, you, you were looking at it as not just the, the flow of money, but the flow of ideas and the ability to connect with, with individual voters and, and just residents of this country and everybody affected by, uh, by this political system. And when we look at how technology has evolved since 2004 and the way that it is amplifying certain information getting out, but also creating greater divisions. And I wanted to hear from you guys a little bit more about that because we've, we've been talking so much about voting rights, but wanted to hear more about how people actually engage in this political discourse. Well, I mean, one of the things that happened in 2004 was meetup.com, which was, you could literally just say, hey, we're having a meeting in uh, put your name in there and people could sign up to meet too about anything. And one of the things we adopted in the Dean camp, we immediately, in, in fact, back then it was thought to be illegal to link to a, an, from a campaign to link, there'd be like, there's, there were FEC regulations that, that said that you might be getting in, in kind contributions because of uh, your ability to reach out to people like that. I mean, it was insane. Uh, it took me two weeks to get the legal impediments out of the way. But my point is, that thousands of meetings happened around the country of people who were coming together and just talking about what they thought we needed to do to strengthen democracy, to, to end the war, or whatever, you know, whatever the issues were that week. We, we purposely didn't, we, we would ask them to hold the meeting and we'd ask them to send us their agenda and what happened. Uh, we didn't, we never told them, hey, the agenda today is this, this, and this. The thousands and thousands of Americans came in those meetings and talked to each other and, and exchanged ideas. And we took the best of them and would run with them for the next few weeks. Uh, it was a totally different way of doing things. 
I, I really thought that's where this was all going to go, right? <laughs> that we were going to, hey, wow, we're, gonna, we're empowering the grassroots. Uh, look at how we're overrunning all the big money. And we can hold meetings and, and people can actually face-to-face in, you know, in, in coffee houses or the, the school gym or wherever they could, they could call them, uh, libraries, uh, public, you know, public places. And somehow it became, I think, a couple of things. One, for too many of the operatives in both parties, it became, well, this seems like a really cool way to raise money. So, so they really got really focused on that, right? I mean, that was like, bam. So I think what happened was the, from, from the campaign operative side in both parties, the most important thing about this new gadget <laughs> this new technology thing that came out of the Dean campaign was money, right? And what got lost, even by the, by the time the Obama campaign came along, was some of that building of community, you know, locally, a community that could talk to each other, even disagree on things, but be civil. Some of these Dean meetups that we woke up one day and all of a sudden, one of the Dean meetups said that they were going to go clean a river for Howard Dean. And I'm like thinking like, okay, I, but I don't understand how that's going to really help, you know, help us. It's great. It's going to help the, the community. The next weekend, meetups all over the United States were cleaning up rivers and things. So it just, there, there are things that really can be done with the technology. I think if we put more of that kind of, fo- you know, start thinking about it that way instead of what can the campaign get out of it kind of thinking, which I unfortunately... We're in election year, and that's what everybody's doing right now, including me. But I'm just saying, I think that sense of community, that citizen, sense of citizenship, I saw it. It was there, and it was, and the technology and the way for people to join together was empowered be, because of the, of the technology. And then, and it, I mean, it, it was made possible in ways that never would have been possible before. And then by 2007, you got smartphones and everything else coming along. I just think there's some really powerful things that could be done but they've all been used for the wrong, a lot of ways the focus has been on the wrong places. I, I think that you know, it, it's amazing how technology creates a larger public space for people to organize in and talk to each other. But yeah, I have a couple of concerns about that, one of which is whether people just end up in their own echo chambers and never, as we were saying before, really exchange ideas with people who have you know, come from different places. So I've spoken at a number of large technology conferences, and after each one, I come away with at least two or three business cards of very enthusiastic young people who have just created a website to try to promote a dialogue between people from both sides of the political aisle. The Benjamin Franklin Society, is, you know, I can't begin to remember, you know, the, the, the name of the hill in Greece for the conversation. So there are a lot of people who are thinking about this. So number one, I think it would be great if those public spaces were a space where we could really, as you're saying, be promoting bonds of citizenship and get, get a place that people will come to from both sides. Set up pen pal equivalents where you have you know, the, the left winger and the right winger from different parts of the country talking to each other. So that's number one, is I think that the public space, I used to think that, that the public space of the internet would be the antidote to money and politics because why would anyone care what ad was on TV if you know, anybody could go to the internet? You know? But it didn't turn out that way. So my second concern, and this is my kind of overall concern about um, technology or moving things online, is equity. One thing that we've been seeing during the pandemic as kids have been forced to go to school remotely is that there are people at an extreme disadvantage depending on how affluent their families are. There are kids who don't have laptops. There are kids who live in a place where they don't get Wi-Fi or they're in very crowded homes where they don't have the quiet to, to attend school. And what I worry about is that if the public, you know, early on the public space was really a space where anybody could come and anybody could equally have access. And I do worry that if technology is our answer, both to the public space and to the election, I worry about whether we're leaving people out and how we can accommodate the interest of equity. Yeah, absolutely. And I did want to say there's sometimes a, a dark side to community building, right? I mean, QAnon is essentially yeah. tapping into that same emotional need for community and just galvanized coalescing around something that is a, essentially a massive disinformation campaign. The Dean campaign, the reason we built it the way we did, I just gotten done reading Robert Putman's 
Bowling Alone, which was this urge for community that, that we had so, you know, gotten into our own things and uh, that we, we were we were bowling up people were going bowling by themselves right and so it was that that's what i thought well that's what i'm trying to say i think it was probably naive right i'm saying you know now in hindsight it's like what was i thinking <laughs> you know did i did i help do this i mean i really i do have those feelings sometimes because i'll, I'll like i said i'll watch trump and i'll go like this is the other side of what we were doing or QAnon. this is the other side of what i hoped this would be on the positive side. It's being used. Um, the technology doesn't know who the hell's using it and what it's being used for. And it, and that's what I meant when I said that, yeah, we built these Trojan horses, actually. It's this, this bone or whatever, this device sitting right there, and it's straight into your brain, man. And you're, you're sucking it in. And I think, you know, a lot of us didn't think about the downsides to it. But I, I think the upside of building citizenship community trying to if, if i often say have said this even in the dean campaign if we don't try to figure out how to use it for good and and actually get people to find common purpose being able to communicate with each other there are plenty of people out there who are spending all their time figuring out the opposite stuff how to use it for their thing and to wreck the democracy to, to get us separated and i actually think that we weren't paying attention and that's what happened over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And it's, you know, the folks that wanted to do bad with it, you know, to, to get, keep their power have figured it out. And we're working and building communities on crazy stuff, knowing that this urge for community was there and look at where it's gotten us. And we weren't doing the same thing that we never really took, I think some really, big steps that we could have or should now to try to use it to, to figure this stuff out and try to save the democracy. Because I actually think, look, I don't think that if Joe Biden wins the election, like all of a sudden, wow, democracy's great. It works. No, no matter who wins, if, if their guy wins and they have some sigh of relief that, wow, democracy really worked this time, wrong. We may get a little reprieve, but the struggle is still there to figure this stuff out, to build citizenship, to figure out how to make it easier for people to vote, to try to address the money disparity. And I agree, you know, how we look, I'll tell you one thing. I've done a lot of international campaigns. I, I spent a lot of time on the ground against uh, like Mugabe in Zimbabwe or and in Nigeria. You're talking about places where there's like 13 percent Internet penetration. I could tell you stories about how even the poorest village in Nigeria, they share one cell phone. I mean, that, that cell phone, the entire village shares it. And the ability to move information, to, to, for the power that they had in their hands in so many, you know, we had the, the, the in, in Nigeria, it was the first peaceful transition of power between a, uh, two presidents, you know, the, the pre outgoing president. Good luck, Jonathan, was the candidate I worked for. He won against the system using the technology and this the one person in a village thing, one phone in the village, and he refused to rig the next election, refused to rig, rig it, and lost. He was the first peaceful transfer of power in eons in that, in that country, and now that, that's happened again and again. So what, what I'm saying is I think one, we've got to do something about the, the disparities and inequities and the ability to have broadband you know, in rural and inner cities and, and be able to affordable. That's something I think that's really important. But I'm also, I also think it, it's amazing to me how the systems can be built where, the, where there are enough people in that community who have the tech, have the ability. They are willing to lead and bring people, you know, get people information and keep them informed and build that community. So I think there's real power out there, but we just have to, to focus more on it. To some extent, it seems to me without adequate regulation, right? I mean, political advertising on television and in print is very heavily regulated. On social media, it's not. Before we wrap up, how can governments and, and political systems put a little bit more pressure, and you're starting to see this from, a, from an economic perspective, but put more pressure on these platforms to be better stewards of our democracy, seeing as they are a, a primary source of information for such a large portion of the population, but also how do individuals empower themselves 
to, to do that. And Susan, you talked about the ACLU trying to get people educated about how to get involved, but we wanted to hear from you how that piece of it, the, the information transfer piece of it can be, because otherwise we are depending on the good nature of people like Good Luck Jonathan saying, I'm not going to manipulate the, the outcome. And, uh, and we've seen that that makes the system that much more susceptible because we do rely on people just being good. So Susan, if, if you have thoughts on that aspect. Well, uh, James Madison once said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need any of these checks and balances in the constitution. So I think that's right. You can't just rely on people being good. But I think you're asking questions in a couple of different directions. One is what do you do about the social media platforms and whether they're in fact taking down incorrect information or propaganda or incitement. Let me first make a point that a lot of people don't realize. The First Amendment about freedom of speech applies to the government, local, state, and federal governments. It does not apply to private people or private companies. And so it would not, in fact, violate your First Amendment rights for Facebook to decide to take down something or Google or Twitter or whatever, something if they thought it was false. The First Amendment just doesn't apply. It means that the government doesn't have any right to go after them if they do or don't. And to us at the ACLU, one of the chief points of the First Amendment is that government intervention is unique in terms of the government having the, the uh, if the government claims the power to tell people what they can and can't say, what they can and can't demonstrate about, what the government thinks is true or false. I could give you a lot of examples in history, especially during World War I, during 1798, the Alien and Sedition Acts, where the government has tried to put a thumb on the scale of what people can say and can't say. So we do not like the idea of the government telling Facebook or Twitter what they have to do or can't do. Um, I think what you could do is you could have regulation of process. So Facebook had for a while a thing where if they thought that you had said something that was false, they would send it out to um, neutral fact checkers. And if the fact checkers said there was reason to be concerned about it being false, they, they would put a red flag on it that's just eliminating it. And yet that kind of thing is more information. We believe in more information. And so I think the conundrum of the social media is that on the one hand, more information is good, but on the other hand, yeah, if you have too much information, you do have to worry about control. So now this is where I think that we can relate the answer back to what we were saying about democracy. Because the good people who you're relying on in social media are what does Mark Zuckerberg think? Or, you know, what do the people think who are at the head? But Facebook is a company. And if the people who are you know, either, if it's a, a corporation, you know, the stockholders or the, the customers, people can push back against a company and tell the company what they think should be doing. So again, I think it's a very complicated question because it's just not as simple as there are First Amendment rights here. The First Amendment doesn't apply. But on the other hand, I think that there is a lot of opportunity for people to be really involved in conversations with Facebook or Google or Twitter about what are the best practices for them to be using. But I don't think that the right thing is for the government to say you can't do that or you have to do that. Joe, from your perspective? I generally agree with that. I, I just think that it's not working, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, I mean, it's just not. And uh, that doesn't mean regulation tomorrow, but it, I, think, I think part of what's going on is the threat of regulation may help be helpful to get the Mark Zuckerbergs to think maybe we need to do something about this. Uh, I'm not saying, yeah, let's regulate it. I'm just saying, but I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to the conversation <laughs> if that makes some adjustment. I do though agree also though that it's us. We gotta, you know, it, it's us demanding or, or suggesting to Facebook, you, it, you, these are the things we wanna see you do. But again, that takes, in a lot of ways, organizing at the grassroots level, right? I mean, so, peop so many people I talk to feel like they're imprisoned by Facebook, right? Like, but I've been there and oh, that's where all my friends are. And if I leave, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, well, then could you get all your friends to start saying, like, change this, change it now, or we're leaving. You know, I'm just saying, I, I think something has, has to happen because it is just, it clearly isn't working. They're clearly way too, I think, been too slow I agree on everybody should be able to say what they want to say and all that kind of stuff, but we're talking about yelling fire in a lot of these things. And they took a long, long time to say, oh, wait, maybe we should not let that guy yell fire. You know, okay. Uh, so I, I just think that, that something has to change there. And I actually think it will, because I think that for a lot of them, the bigger threat may be Europe or some other regulatory body doing something way before 
the U.S. government will. So, so I mean, they, they, they may face a threat from somewhere else. But I, th I think the, the thing that really strikes me is that the fundamental message here is about empowerment and responsibility to the individual citizen, right? Both whether we are trying to change the, the very system of governance that is over us or the, the way that we consume media. It's about we have, we as individuals have the power to do something about it. And if we realize that, you know, you take all your friends, just starting with that and say, let's, let's ask for change, you can make that change happen. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I think is, is really the powerful force. I, I think that does get back to the sort of the sense of citizenship, though. If we, if we're all sort of doing our own thing and, you know, and, and not seeing the common connection or, or even with our friends, if we get a sense that we can, that we are citizens, that there is, you know, that, that we are in this together somehow. And that's how you get to that place where all their friends are ready to do something about Facebook. Right now it's like, we're powerless, we can't do anything. And I'm going to a party Friday night or, you know, whatever, you know, I want to watch the game. You know, look, I do too. Right. But I just think somehow we have to to get to that moment where people are meeting and decide they're going to go clean a river together. You know, that, I, I think that's really important. It's almost as if entertainment has replaced religion as the opiate of the masses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Susan. What I would want to say is I agree that in some ways our big takeaway here is that the first three words in the Constitution are we the people. We are the government. It's not like the government is doing the wrong things. If the wrong things are happening, we are responsible. So I want to tell one last story, which I think is encouraging because it's so awful. And this is looking back to the past. And Joe was mentioning before in the context of an African nation, the peaceful transition of power. Well, the first transition of power that we had in the United States from one political party to another was <laughs> more fraught than what we have today. The Federalists with President John Adams were leaving office after they had just, you know, filled up the federal courts with all of their own people. They had been prosecuting opposing party journalists for being saying critical things about the president. And it was really one party rule. So Thomas Jefferson is elected due to some complications in the electoral college. And as a result, the lame duck Federalist Congress tried the best they could to lock in their power before you know, turning out the lights. So they created all these new judgeships, the midnight judgeships, and tried to you know, stack the courts so that they would have an advantage. So if the Democrat Republicans did something that was not, you know, that they wouldn't have liked, judges could in fact throw it out. Extending that, what they did at the time, there were six justices on the Supreme Court. And as people may know, the constitution doesn't say how many justices there have to be. So it was just up to Congress. Well, what that Congress did, because Jefferson had been elected, was they reduced the number of justices from six to five, so that the next time there was a vacancy, Jefferson would not be able to fill a seat, that he wouldn't get an appointment to the Supreme Court. And just for additional insurance to make sure that the courts were not going to strike down anything that they had done is unfair and unconstitutional, they canceled the 1802 term of the Supreme Court, which they also have the power to do under the Constitution. So, you know, if, if people are saying to you, the hyperpartisanship is out of control, we've never seen anything like it. Go back to the first transition of power we had, and it was a lot like it. The issues were all the same. It was about immigration and fake news and taxes and states' rights. So in some ways, we've come a long way, but we got past that episode of virulent hyperpartisanship, and I think you know maybe we can do it again. I think that's that's a powerful message on which to end. I I think it's incredibly empowering to think of it that way, right? It's looking at it as the long arc of history as opposed to this election or these past four years and, and thinking of it as, as going back to that very founding document and the first three words of it, I think is an incredibly powerful message. Susan, Joe, th this has been a fascinating and illuminating discussion. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Truly appreciate it. Thank you, Shlomi. Thank you. Join us next time on the second part of this election theme episode on the XPRIZE Future Positive podcast. If you're hearing this before November 3rd, don't forget to vote, whatever your political affiliation, just go out, exercise it, listen to our guests, exercise your power. Thank you all.
This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.